1: to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This podcast series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture to provide you with full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners so that you can listen at your convenience and keep up to date with the new developments in arboriculture. We will be releasing a new podcast about once a month for downloads. We recommend that you subscribe to this series in iTunes or directly from the ISA website so that you don't miss a single topic. If you have a favorite arboricultural topic that you would like to learn more about, please contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, the host of this series at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Today's talk is by Philip Andreen. He is a lawyer who has served as the City Attorney for Pasadena, California, as a California Superior Court Judge, and as a Plaintiff's Attorney. His talk is titled, Minimizing Liability Before the Limb Falls. This talk was originally presented at the ISA International Meeting in Providence, Rhode Island in July 2009.
0: I'm standing in line at the American Airlines ticket desk, and the guy in front of me is screaming and yelling at the ticket agent, and she's smiling so sweet, and uh, finally he moves along and leaves, and I said, how could you smile at that guy? He's cursing you and yelling at you, and she said, well, it's very simple. He's going to Hawaii, and his luggage is going to India. She found a way to fight back, didn't she? And I'm going to teach you and share with you some ways that you can fight back from liability and, and the costs of uh, tree and sidewalk uh, litigation. That presentation by Thomas Pakenham was really something, wasn't it, this morning? It was very touching. Uh, he was speaking my language, and I'm here because I share his passion for trees. You are in effect, my heroes, because you're the ones that are out in the front line working with trees. I I applaud you for your life's profession. I call you, not tree geeks, but my tree soldiers. So will you be my tree soldiers? And I'm going to be your tree advocate. For 20 years I was assistant city attorney in Pasadena. Had about every type of tree and sidewalk case imaginable. I learned a lot of things, often little things, that work to win cases in court. And that's what I'm here to share with you today. I know what jurors find to be persuasive, and that's what I'm going to share with you. And it's amazing, but what the city does before the accident ever occurs is often more important than what you do afterwards. Sometimes it's too late. Litigation is like a football game, and I'm sharing my play book with you today. These are basic strategies. We have about 21 basic strategies we're going to go through. And also have, in your CD handout, you have uh, 56 different ways that we can resolve the sidewalk-tree conflict. So I would urge you to look at that, and everybody should uh, have, have a copy of that. Mostly what we're dealing with is not legal stuff. It's practical, down-to-earth stuff. But speaking of legal, what's brown and black and looks good on a lawyer? A Doberman. <laughs> before we get started, I want to compliment you on the time of my uh, presentation. I I spoke to the Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee Municipal Attorneys about a month ago, and they started at 8 a.m. I spoke at 8 a.m. Guess what time that is? California time, where I'm from. That was a 5 a.m. speech, and I got through it okay, but this is a lot lot nicer. I am on a mission. I want to share my knowledge with you. Uh, If you can come out with one or two ideas that perhaps save a city or a municipality for 50000 bucks or 25000 that's great. If you only have one idea, but if you save $500,000 by that one idea, then that's great. And we all need financial help in this free world. We heard this morning, buzz, buzz, buzz. It's the economy, stupid. It is. The free budgets are, are falling, falling, falling. Plaintiffs, attorneys, deep pocket, they're going after us. They have a very aggressive attitude. We have to be aggressive, too. And what I'm going to be talking about is being aggressive. How many of your cities have insurance? Let me, let me have a thought. You work for cities that have insurance. About a fourth or a fifth. Most of them don't. Pasadena didn't. We have an umbrella up around $10 million. But that's one of the other problems. We don't have insurance. And these are high-exposure cases. The potential is there. We heard about some tree cases. We had two sidewalk trip and falls wrongful deaths in Pasadena, wrongful deaths from sidewalks. One, I settled very comfortably, very low, because of an older gentleman. And the other one, the attorney called and said, uh well, I called the attorney, actually, I'm very proactive, and I said, how are you going to prove this? The guy, your client is dead. And there were no witnesses. He said, well, it's in the medical report. And I said, well, of course, that's hearsay. And that's the last I ever heard of him. The case was never filed. Now, what he didn't know, there's an exception to the hearsay rule called the Dying Declaration. Of course, I didn't bother to mention that to him. <laughs> <laughs> the, I, I had a murder case one time where the whole thing turned on a dying declaration, they were accused of my man and if, if the guy had if the deceased had death motives when he made the statement accusing my client then it would come in as an exception to the hearsay rule and I found a nurse, he had mentioned to the nurse he was buying a new dress for his wife not death motives, life motives it stayed out, my guy walked so interesting, law is very interesting my handout that you'll have on your CD is excellent, I think. And uh, I was down at the New Jersey Shade Tree. They, they printed it uh, in their Shade Tree uh, magazine over three issues. And I urge you to study that. I urge you to distribute that. You know, if there's some things I say that you say, "Hey, they don't apply to me, and there will be some things that don't apply to a lot of people in here. You know there's a lot of different ideas. But if you know somebody can apply to, maybe your public works, maybe your city attorney then take a copy of that and share that with him or her. You can stop me for questions anytime or wait till the very end. And if you want to call me later, my, my phone number is in the, uh, the handout material, and I'd welcome calls anytime time through the year. The first strategy, you can operate in one of two ways. You can operate under crisis management, or you can operate under a risk management policy. And I'll tell you, you, win cases in court by having a risk management policy and being an effective tree risk manager. Learning how to monitor those risks. The challenge, of course, is that tree management is not a science. But your goal, and I'm going to urge you, is to learn how to be an effective tree manager. Now, there's an article in the uh, Arborist News, April of 2007. That's a good place to start. It's risk Excuse me, managing the risks in the urban forest. That's a good place to start, but I'm going to urge you to study because it is a matter of discretion, obviously, because tree management is an art, not a science. So learn, start there. I would recommend that you have a, in your municipality a tree risk management plan. You're going to talk about the resources, the inventories, the priorities and risks, and you're going to come up with a community level of care. I might ask, how many of you either have in your municipalities or work with cities that have a risk management plan? Would you raise your hands? Okay, about maybe eight or nine. I'd urge all of you to do that, because the ones that do have that are going to have a better chance in court of winning their case. The tree's going to fall. They're going to say, hey, we weren't able to inspect that tree as often as we want, but we have a risk management plan, and we did our best, and jurors are going to listen to that, and they're going to They're going to listen to that. How many of you have a comprehensive urban forest management plan? Okay, about five or six here, too. And once again, the more you do on these plannings is to persuade the jury. It's going to be very helpful in court. Bottom, written plans will impress jurors. The second strategy is to have a systematic inspection and maintenance system. And the key word here is systematic one of the best defenses we can have, shows the jury we're trying. The frequency of your inspection, it's a tough question. You'll hear a lot of different opinions on that. There is no set standard. I would recommend for your juries that you have at least once a year inspection of your high-risk trees. Have at least some one-year inspection of your highest-risk trees. The rule is inspect as as frequently as your budget will allow, but of course, We never can do as much as we want, so you're going to uh, analyze it, and you're going to document why you couldn't do more. Always document everything. What types of inspections? Walking inspections are the very best. I recommend those for for the jury. Uh, Visual inspection should be adequate for the jury, and if you come across something that warrants uh, uh, more invasive, then you can go ahead. That should meet the standard for jurors. What about windshield inspections. They serve a purpose. If you have a particular thing you're looking for, like were trees topped or certain characteristics, uh, after storms, windshield inspections are wonderful. But I would recommend you not use those as your primary inspection. That will not pass muster before juries. Okay. We have a chart here. It shows different levels of risk. The duty to inspect increases as the risk increases. And that includes those cyclones. So if you're in an area where your cyclone is a concern, then you're going to have a higher inspection duty than one that does not. And always document your inspections. How many of you have risk charts such as this? Or use them? Okay. couple. I would recommend you lay out your program like this. Take your highest risk trees and give those an annual inspection. It may be only 30 trees if that's all you can afford, but at least you're. Telling the jury, we're doing the best we can, and then uh, have different risk cycles depending on on the risk involved. How many of you use the drive-by inspection system? Good, very few. Now, once again, like I said, it serves a purpose, but not as a primary inspection system. How many of you use computerized tree inventories Computerized. If you can do it, I recommend you do it. Very impressive to a jury. You can share with other cities. You know, just uh, get two or three cities together and, and go into it. <clears throat> and if you've got them, be sure you use them. Often people get them and then they don't, they don't update them and, and uh, uh, don't use them. There's a, a, a tree bulletin, a tree city bulletin number 23 talks about um, inventories. I, I would refer that to you. And there's a website, um, itreetools.org slash that um, also gives you information on, on uh, inventories. Inventories can also help win cases. We had one case where there was a big hole, and it looked like a, a root ball hole, and they claimed that was a city tree, but the tree inventory, our computerized inventory, so there was no city tree there, so we won the case. Later, I figured out it probably was our fault. It probably was a cherry picker, a city cherry picker that went over onto the grass and went in and sank, but uh, at least we were off the hook. Use trained inspectors. Dr. Scheigel says inspectors should be top of the book. He says, this is not something you learn in a book. So use only trained inspectors for your tree inspections. Don't try to cut corners there. And have a very broad inspection program, not just we inspect once a year. First, have your systematic inspection, an annual, regular, not annual, but a regular thing. Secondly, have your program consist of citizen complaints. Third, instruct all your city employees or your municipal employees to be on the lookout for tree problems while they're going about their other work. If they're working on a curb or if they're working on sidewalks, have them looking, just glancing the tree. It's not a full inspection, but at least they're looking for problems. And a jury will be impressed that you are trying to be more thorough. It's not just your arborists are going out, but you have other city employees looking, too. And on your inventory, have a checklist for any tree problems. Uh, Excuse me. On your on your sidewalk inspections, have a little place where you can check tree problems. At least they look, and if they observed anything, they can check off. And also on your tree inventory, have a little place for sidewalk inspections. So if they're out looking at a tree and they see a defective sidewalk, they can check that off. That also would um, would help you before a jury, and document everything. We'll be talking about that. One one thing I hear every once in a while is, well, I don't want to do inspections because that gives us too much knowledge and we can't fix everything and it's just going to hurt us. That's wrong. Number one, most states have what they call constructive notice, that the city has to have constructive notice of the defect. But they say that if a reasonable inspection would have revealed something, then you have constructive notice, even if not actual notice. And who do you want to have define what is a reasonable notice? Do you want to have the plaintiff's attorney define that in court? Or do you want to have your own inspection system that the jury? usually will take as being reasonable, so that's one reason to have an inspection. Secondly, jurors don't like you when you put your head in the sand. They, they want to have people that are doing their best out trying. So, if you don't inspect, you've you got a problem there. Third, you're protecting the public more, obviously, and that's, that's one of your primary purposes. You're going to have less fewer injuries, less lawsuits, because you're inspecting and you're finding defects. So, therefore, do, in, do the inspections. go back one? I'm sorry. Okay. Set up your defenses in advance. Tell your employees you don't have to repair something. All you have to do is warn about it. So if they see a problem, have them put up a sign or a barricade or something, at least warn so there's there's uh, no injury. They don't have to ignore it. Well, we can't fix that, let's just go on. And therefore you can save that injury and save potential liability. We have also a thing called plan or design immunity, where if a per- the city or the person in charge of the decision making resolves it, makes, makes a decision on a certain plan or design, later, if that plan or design factor caused the injury, you have an immunity. You're not liable. So if he says, I'm going to decide to put a tree in this location, and then the plaintiffs later say that was a bad location, there probably would be no liability. Or if he decides on a certain type of tree well, that's a plan or design. You probably have no liability. But the point is you have to set that up. And you set that up by having the right person make the decision. And you document the decision. You keep records on the decision being made and the factors that went into it. So we're setting up our defenses in advance. And the discretionary immunity. If you have a policy-type decision that is discretionary with the council or with the director of public works or the top arborist, and the court says that's discretionary, you have an immunity. Now, it has to be a policy type, not just day-to-day, uh, more mundane things, but you want to document that and uh, show that the factors were taken into consideration and um, the right person decided that. So if you can document that, I had one planned design immunity. I used the records for 40 years old, and we were able to find the records, and it was approved by the council, and it was a uh, location of something, and uh, it worked very nice. <laughs> An audit is very, very important. You're going to go through all your policies and all your documents to reduce liability exposure. You're cleaning out the attic, basically, and you're not going to know how bad it is until you get there. City of Pasadena, we had one provision that said, there shall be no house shall remain standing in the city between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Kind of silly. What it forgot to say was, during house moving, So if you just read it, you'd say, what kind of provision is this? You have Look at your statutes and your policies. Are are they too vague? Are they unconstitutional in light of new decisions? Do they have the wrong titles? Are they just nonsense? Look at your contracts, your purchase orders, your specs. Are the standards up to date? Are they too low? Are they too high? Are you following the specs? Is there new technology that perhaps requires higher standards now? These are all things you want to look at. And here, I'm going to suggest also that you add, as a goal, to your ISA chapters and your city policies, the following. Increase tree funding through reducing tree liability exposure and cost by adopting proactive liability reduction strategies. I think that should be a goal, because you're going to raise a lot of money if you can effectively do that. What about shifting the risk? I'm a big believer in having somebody else pay for the the liability. So go through all your documents, be very aggressive on this, any document you have, check and see if you have an indemnity clause, a hold harmless, insurance, it works. All your contracts, your purchase orders, your specs, anything include these clauses. We had a trip in a fall one time during a bicycle race outside the Rose Bowl by some charity and this spectator tripped and fell and by golly their insurance paid $150,000 because I had a clause in the use permit, indemnity. So just plug those in every place. Do your documents define the risk? I overheard a conversation last night at the President's reception about a fellow that said, hey, I had the proposal in, and they didn't act on it for six months, and then they wanted a new proposal after six months, and I had to go through that whole thing again. So I'm just thinking, if he had asked himself, what if, you know, looked at all the contingencies and had some clause in the contract to cover that eventuality, he would have been better off. So. Whenever you have a contract or an agreement, just ask yourself, what if? And you can look at The classic example is the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Some stupid attorney wrote in the contract, if Anaheim gives us $15 million, we'll always have the word Anaheim associated with the Angels. So the new owner comes in and calls it the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and the court says, well, they don't have to call it the Anaheim Angels. It just said associated with, so that's right. That attorney should have been shot. So ask yourself what if, be very particular about that. Watch your language. You know, when I came to the city, we had toe stubbers. Well, toe stubbers sounds awfully cute, but if the woman has a broken jaw, and she looks like Grandma C, you don't want to have a jury hearing that you called it a toe stubber. Make sure your documents are complete. There was one city that had a $20 million building constructed, and the construction documents did not ever put the $20 million in there. There was a blank. Just says the cities will agree to pay blank. They sign the document, the contract, and everything, and never put in the amount. So make sure that it's complete. Don't use mandatory language, because we want to have that discretionary defense. So if you say an employee has to do that or has to do that, then you're going to lose your, your mandatory. Now, I would recommend also for city um, arborists that, or cities that you consider, at least, having outside arborists. There's a lot to be said for that. Um, number one, cities don't have insurance where the outside arborists would. Uh, the outside arborists may well have more experience, which weighs well with the jury. Uh, they don't have to pay the outside arborists if they do a bad job. Uh, they don't have worker's comp type problems. That's the arborist, outside arborist problem. And they don't have, if they have personnel reductions, they don't have to worry about that. So there's some factors there. I had a stamp made up. It said, Confidential Attorney-Client Work Product Official Information Document. And I stamped that on everything. Now some things probably didn't warrant its being stamped on it, I have to admit that. But it was a starting point. And uh, so we tried to protect ourselves with that kind of thing. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna have you go back one more there. Which was the back one? Okay. Okay. Let's go forward now one. Okay, risk assess city property. Just know what you have and what the risks are. Evaluate your own property. Inventory your own property. We had a tree well one time. For 20 years, it sat there open like this. Never planted a tree. Never did anything about it. Terrible. And a poor guy who was a, a diabetic with one foot stepped in it and lost his other foot. And that was a t- terrible case. I had a friend who was also a diabetic with no feet. And I was going to use him as a witness to say... It's not good, I'm not happy, but at least life goes on. So your case isn't worth $8 million. maybe it's only worth $800,000. Sometimes you'd have to just fold and just do the best you can, cut your losses. So we were able to settle that. But uh, risk assess your own property, know what you have. Documenting, you have to document everything. You need, you need to... Um, get it before the jury in a form that the jury can understand it. The golden rule is it isn't he who has the gold wins, it's he who has the hard evidence wins. It's one thing to act reasonably, but you also got to prove it. Juries like paper trails. Paper documents are much more persuasive than oral testimony. People forget. Like the guy that goes to the doctor and says, hey doc, I've been having trouble with my memory. The doctor says, how long you had that? The guy said, had what? People are not available. That's another reason for paper trail. And it's easier to testify, and it makes you look awfully organized. So those are reasons for having documentation. What to document, all your inspections and maintenance. Keep an ongoing record of that. All your decisions, you want that discretionary immunity. So you're going to document it. And your plan or design. Talk to your attorneys about how you can set those defenses up. What you're going to do is document the factual basis that you used to make those decisions. You're going to show that the decisions were well thought out, you considered all the factors, and you did the best decision you could on the available resources. And the jury's going to buy that, if they have that documentation. Plus, that you took interim measures while you were trying to decide, so you were really acting reasonable. And if for some reason a policy wasn't followed, also document that. Why we were not able, we didn't have the money, to follow this policy. Jury will accept that too. Don't admit anything. Don't say it's our fault or not, because it may not be your fault. Maybe there's an immunity. And even if it is your fault, it'll hurt your chances of settling a case if you admit fault. Don't editorialize. And always assume that the other side's going to get whatever you record. That's a good, good rule. We want to keep others from getting more information than they They have a right to. In other words, you have certain legal obligations to get information, but you don't want to give out more than you have to. So, all your employees should be instructed to contact your city attorney whenever there's a request for an interview, a subpoena, or any type of request for documents. It gives you the maximum information protection. You're you're, you're squelching any request for information. And it also alerts your attorney to a potential litigation case so he can start investigating and preparing. I did one thing, and I would never heard of anybody else doing also, if, if it was a marginal case whether they weren't entitled to something, I would say, hey, I'll give it to you if you sign an indemnity clause. So I did that one time by a plaintiff who was suing somebody else. They cross-complained against the city, so I tendered to the plaintiff under this hold harmless. Now how does that work out? If she wins 100000 against this guy, and the city is $20,000 liable, then because of our indemnity, she just gets $20,000 less. It was an interesting case, but it worked. We're aggressive. And just give the minimum. Don't give more than you have to. You're going to get in trouble if you say more than you have to. Reminds me of a guy who was charged in court with eating a bald eagle, can you imagine? And the court was just aghast, but the guy said, Your Honor, my family was poor, we didn't have any food, okay, I'll give you probation. As the guy was walking out, he says, By the way, what does a bald eagle taste like? And he also said, I would never done this before. And the judge says, what did it taste like? Just out of curiosity, he said, well, it's kind of a cross between a spotted owl and a California condor. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to say more than you have to. Create litigation awareness. Promote safety in your city. Make sure that uh, people are uh, understanding the importance of avoiding litigation. Contribute to the International Tree Failure Database Program. It'll help that program, it'll help you. And it'll help the jury know that you're really trying, you're doing, you're hitting all the corners here. I love this. There are so many states that have statutes that are just poor statutes when it comes to protecting yourself. Now three states have great statutes. They say you can't sue us. If you can get your state to go along with that, that's great. Then you've got 100% no liability. But most states don't go that far, but there's so many things you can do to uh, correct your state statute. And if you ever invite me to speak for your state, either as an arborist, speaker before an arborist group or attorneys group, I will audit that state's laws and come across, make good recommendations on what changes you can make to make your state more defense oriented. For instance, I was down in Tennessee, and they have a simple negligence. All you got to do is prove tree liability is negligence. California has dangerous condition. We have all these requirements. The jury has to prove this and this and this and this and this. And I said, isn't it better to make the jury go through these hoops than just say negligence? So they're going to consider changing that. Immunities. California has about 20 immunities. Some states have three or four. Check out California. I'm going to be talking Wednesday on shifting maintenance responsibility from the city to homeowners, adjacent homeowners. So I'm not going to go into it further, but let me ask how many of you have cities or work with cities that shift the maintenance to the adjacent homeowners. Okay, that's very good, about half of you. Well, come and hear me Wednesday and learn how to do it, because it's, it's a free ride. You get, there's a lot of good reasons for it. And also, I'm going to be talking about shifting liability now, not just maintenance, but if a sidewalk causes a trip and fall, and if a city tree that caused the track, still the homeowner is going to be liable. There's some arguments, good public policy arguments in the public safety that warrant that, that we'll talk about. How many of you have cities or municipalities that shift the liability to the homeowner? Anybody here? Very good. Okay, very good. About three or four. Well, there's a lot of money to be saved by doing that. You can learn about it on Wednesday. Inspection immunity. Most states, I think, have If you inspect, uh, if you fail to inspect something, there can be an immunity. California, it doesn't apply to dangerous condition cases, so that's something I would change in California. Tennessee had a definition of dangerous as defective, unsafe, or dangerous. So I said, hey, defective, you know, somebody could trip on a one-fourth of an inch crack, I mean, it's possible one-third... And the plaintiff's attorney could argue, well, it may not be unsafe, it may not be defective, but that's, I mean, it may not be dangerous, but it's defective. So, Tennessee, they told me they were going to take some of my recommendations, go before the legislature, and that's one of them. Massachusetts, if you skate, skateboard or skate on the sidewalk, there's no liability if you fall, because it's just for traveling. Sidewalks are for traveling, so that's, if you're traveling and fall, you can collect. If you're skateboarding, you cannot. That's wonderful. New Jersey. It's amazing. You won't believe this. The plaintiff must prove that the city's action was palpably unreasonable. Palpably unreasonable. That's more than negligence. The court said it's patently unacceptable under any circumstances. The case said there was no arborist in the city. They never did a tree inspection. They didn't do anything. And the court says, well, that's not palpably unreasonable there's no liability. That's amazing. So, if you can get your state to accept that, then you've got a good deal. Probably most won't. California also, I'd like to have a cap on damages. So, even if there is liability, the most they can recover is maybe 300000 something like that. Let me ask you, are, are you aware of any other legislative changes in your states that you'd like to see your tort your liability uh, legislation changed? If you ever have any suggestions, get to me, and I'll, I'll be glad to discuss it with you. The best defense, obviously, is preventing accidents. Doctor, my thumb hurts. Well, don't do that. You know? That type of thing. So you want to instruct your employees to really be aware of that. Uh, The duty of care increases as technology increases. And and use uh, training is the key way to, to instill that in your employees. You have to learn about accidents early in the game. Some cities, the attorney's not involved until later, and then the lawsuit is filed. In other words, some non-attorney handles the claims. Wrong. When I was there, I looked at every single claim. Most of them just sent off because they weren't too big, but I started files. It's really important that the legal aspects start right off the bat. And to learn of those accidents, you want to learn about them, you know, because sometimes claims take six months, they have to file a claim. So I used to study the newspaper every day. The police department would alert me to any accidents that they thought there might be liabilities. Um, And remember we talked about records requests and subpoenas and requests for interviews. If those people said, hey, somebody wants to interview me about an accident, then I know about the accident and I can investigate it. So there's some really good ways to uh, learn about these cases. Have these early warning systems in place before the accident. Your claim form is a wonderful source of information. Usually they say, state what happened, or the, 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 the law, the state law usually says, the claim form should say, describe the action, or something like that. I went way beyond that. I said, name the witnesses, please provide a diagram, tell me what happened in your own words. Um, all this information, it wasn't required by state law, but nobody ever objected. And then I had them sign off under penalty of perjury, and I got more information, more help than you'd ever imagine, just from this simple little claim form. So that's something you want to do. You want to get your attorney involved in the claim process from the very first. You want to develop kind of a hard-nosed attitude. You want the plaintiffs to know that you're a city or a municipality, that they're going to have a hard time suing. It's going to be rough. You're not going to be like an insurance company that just, hey, whatever you want, nuisance value. We're not, we're not going to be that kind of city. And you develop a reputation, you're being aggressive, just like the plaintiff's counsel are, are aggressive. And I was the plaintiff's attorney for 15 years before I came to Pasadena, so I, I knew all the tricks there. But uh, established reputation is being, is being tough, basically, and not a, not a pushover. And you'll get rid of a lot of frivolous cases, because a lot of attorneys out there just hope they can file something and get a settlement. But if they know, I don't want to bother with, with Pasadena, they're going to give me such a bad time, they won't file. And you should be proactive during the early claim stage. This is probably more for attorneys, but I would call. Since I got a case, if I didn't think he had a case, I'd call like that wrongful death case. I called the guy the day I got the claim. I said, how are you going to prove this? And that's the last I heard of it. So you want to be proactive. It sure helps. Two problems with repairs. One, the the tree gets repaired, cleaned up before it's investigated. So you've got to have lines of communication open between your city attorney's office and your arborist or public works, so you can notify the city attorney that something's happened here. What can we do to investigate it? And uh, don't don't repair it before the city attorney's had a chance to investigate. Of course, put up a temporary warning or barricade or whatever is necessary to make it safe the other problem is this if you repair something that might indicate that you were at fault and therefore it's going to hurt you at trial so should you ignore it should you put public safety over litigation which takes priority I always fell down on the side of public safety so if something really needed to be repaired I would repair it and we could photograph it and keep our evidence of it now you can always put barricades up. You know you can leave a condition and put the barricades up. So that that is also one thing. But I would I would go public safety first. Here's another issue. Let's say somebody trips on a one-third inch. No, there's no liability. You go go ahead and repair that. You wouldn't have re- you would not have repaired it if nobody had tripped. But you go ahead and repair it. Now that might tend to indicate uh, responsibility if it ever got into the jury. I did for public safety. That was just the way I was I was set up. Set up your investigative procedures so your employees can preserve evidence. Nothing hurt, hurts a case more than waiting a couple weeks or even a week and have evidence dissipated. And the handout that I give you, read that. There's a really good review of how to investigate cases, so I'd, I'd urge you to read that. But you want your employees to be re- prepared to analyze and gather evidence. Witnesses disappear, accident sites are cleaned up, and it can just hurt your case. I had a murder case one time when the scal was shot, a fellow at Big Al's bar. You never want to go to Big Al's bar in San Diego, I'll tell you, that's a bad place. And uh, he had hit her first, and she had some blood on her head. Within 15 minutes of getting the case, I had a professional photographer photograph her head because I wanted to get the glistening blood you know excuse me but that was what was going to make the impact for the jury so you have to move quickly like that that's an that's an extreme case but it shows you the type of thing you want to do have your employees knowledgeable about preserving evidence maybe they want to keep the limb hey we're going to keep the limb we're just going to save it we're not going to throw it away we're not even going to to photograph it but we'll we'll also keep it I had one case where I had a water meter of some sort and um, the guys assured me it would be there for trial and it was gone, so I used to keep everything in my, in my office. I even had one time a 15-foot uh, fire hydrant hose connecting two fire hydrants. I just, it came loose and about a million gallons of water went. And I just kept it in my office. You know, it looked like a tree growing in there, but it was safe. Photographs are wonderful. How many of you have a video ready to go? Okay, one, I compliment you. Photographs are the most wonderful way to preserve evidence. And they also are a wonderful way to show that you've repaired something. If you've gone out and repaired it, take a photograph. Prove it to the jury. Jurors like that kind of stuff. Go through my my, uh, report. We'll show you how to do this. My favorite photograph was a train. A guy got the... just a second before a train hit a car going 25 miles an hour. So click, bang. Just one of those things. And the attorney never got the photograph. So the woman testified the, the gate was not down, of course, the photograph had the gate down. She testified the light was green, and of course it was green. It was red, so those types of things. The two that I didn't like was a nice photograph of a lady that looked just like Grandma C, and her two front teeth were out from having tripped on the sidewalk. You know what I said? I said, give me the checkbook, because that was one that I didn't want to have to try. And one time, an attorney and I, there was a baby carriage, it was hit in the crosswalk, And the plaintiff's attorney and I were going through the police photos of this little baby. And we both cried, because we both had daughters. And so sometimes it gets poignant, very poignant. Make sure your videos are clean. One time I'm driving to a mediation, and I had still photographs, but the worker I took along with me said, Oh, my Mr. and I took a video. I said, Oh, great, we'll use that. He said, Oh, by the way, there's X-rated stuff on the rest of the video. I said, I don't think so, I don't think so, I don't think so. And I had a murder trial one time where it turned out that the, uh, the plaintiff's witness was actually the killer. And they arrested him, and he's sitting in jail right now. Well, a key recording that I was able to make of a witness, I forgot that on the back of that was a party. I was running for an office, and we had a party of just people trying to think of campaign slogans at all. So I just told the DA, that this side is okay, but sorry about the other side. So make sure your stuff is clean. Be creative. If, if it's a little case, use your in-house stuff. Use your in-house people. Train them how to do it. I had a uh, 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 forensics guy, 75 bucks. John, go measure the crack at this this accident, and he'd be out, and he'd have a photograph and and a measurement that was very usable in court, just like that. So have your witnesses ready to go. Have a witness, have an attorney on standby. You know, if your city attorney can't handle it, at least have somebody, and have your experts ready to go. I just mentioned this one guy. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Dr. Bob, because I had some murder trials and other things that sometimes all you have is the insanity defense. So Dr. Bob was really great. Jurors loved him. I said, Dr. Bob, did you examine this glass of water? "Uh, Yes, I did. And could this water tell right from wrong? "Uh, No, it couldn't. Therefore, do you have an opinion on uh, whether this water was insane? Yes, it was legally insane, because it couldn't tell. Not quite that bad, but uh, he was was great. If you point a finger and make a a department pay some money, they're going to take, they're going to become accountable pretty fast. Safety committee, uh, review the cases. You can benefit from trends and and, uh, learn something from from that from an accountability point of view. Funding your efforts, very important. Get your council involved. So often, council decisions are based on perceptions, not facts. I'm sure every one of you run into this. They have an idea about something, but they really don't know the truth. So get your council involved. Get them out to the activities. Do some politicking. Get them into the tree activities. And we were talking about uh, public relations and community support. That, too, is so important. If you're going to have to remove trees, as we do sometimes, uh, it's best if you can uh, prepare your public for that and have discussions. And And do it, uh, and graduate it. Don't say take down all 30 trees, maybe do 10 at a time, something like that. The conflict between tree roots and sidewalks. If you can reduce that conflict, you're going to save money, you're going to have fewer accidents. In my handout are 56 suggestions. I also am going to recommend that you get a uh, book that's published by the Western chapter of ISA called Reducing infrastructure damaged by tree roots, a condomin- con- compendium, compendium. Not a condominium, it's a compendium. It's wonderful. And every arborist who deals with tree roots and sidewalks should have a copy of that. It explores most of the options. I'll say that because my list has a couple they didn't have, I noticed. I went through it quickly last night. and uh, But it's just, it's just marvelous. And if you see something, or are aware of some method of handling sidewalk cracks, resolving that tree root versus sidewalk conflict that you don't see in my list or in that book, please call me because I'd, I'd like to add it to my list and bring it to their attention also. And when you take these steps, you've got 56 choices on my list, document what you're doing and why you didn't do the other things. You can't do all 56, you don't have funds for that. So document why you chose certain things but not other things. Now, what about eliminating sidewalks? Can a city just say, we don't want to have a sidewalk here? Can they do that? How many think they can just say no sidewalks? Okay, actually, the city can uh, just say, we don't want to have a sidewalk. The only exception I found, there was a case that said near a school, where a whole lot of school children are walking on the street, they should have had a sidewalk there. What about if you have a sidewalk in existence and you said, this has too many cracks, we love the trees, we're just going to vacate the sidewalk, take it out. Can they do that? And the answer to that is yes also, although I found one case where they said there was a, um, it was a historic home and somehow removing the sidewalk reduced the value so they got an injunction, silly case. Let me suggest this is a last resort for the sidewalk-tree root conflict. It's a memo I sent to my public works department. Director of Public Works, Ray, Sidewalk Speed Hump Program. It is with pleasure that I announce the Pasadena Sidewalk Speed Hump Program. This new program will incorporate the city's many already existing sidewalk humps in an effort to slow down bicyclists, roller skates, and skateboard riders endangering our sidewalk pedestrians. Since the sidewalk humps are already in existence, there will be no cost to the program. And that's exactly the response I got from my uh, public works. They love that. They love that. They said, we're going to put that right into, right into order. In conclusion, if you can use one idea and save your municipality some money, then I, I feel like I've, I've succeeded today. Hopefully, you can use more than that. And I would consider that to be like a personal check for me. If, if you can save 25000 then I feel like I've given your city a check for 25000 That That's the way I feel about this. Be proactive. Spread the word. You know, maybe if something, you think, hey, that's a pretty good idea, but it doesn't apply to me, bring it to the attention of the person that it does apply to. And you can share my uh, handout, or you can tell them, hey, I heard Andreen talk about this. Why don't you try that? Have you tried that? might work. And remember, the best defense is a good offense. Be proactive. Thank you. This
1: concludes Philip Andrean's talk entitled Minimizing Liability, before the limb falls. You can receive ISA continuing education credits for this talk. To get credits, go to the ISA website, the Education and Research tab, then find e-learning and ISA online quizzes. The code to get you to the quiz for this lecture is SA6531. Again, sa 6531 Please remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another Science of Arboriculture.
0: Trees in every country Trees, you know we can Work together and learn what we need To meet the challenge Traditional skills and modern techniques Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.